read aloud. And we have Amy Schmidt, who's a graduate program coordinator in the School of Environmental and Natural Resources. And finally, <laughs> Shirley Ashworth. <laughs> Shirley Ashworth, you say that exactly right. He's an, an instructor at the uh, Pilates Studio of Central Ohio. And we have an interesting combination of books that they're going to read from. I'll let, uh, who's going to start? Um, well, that's what we wanted to ask our listeners. Okay, I'll, yes. I'll let, let them take over. Thank you, Ruth. Um, we're reading uh, a work of fiction. This is Tuvia in the Promised Land, which is uh, written by a different author, but uh, basically a sequel to The Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and even from, uh, Reading this, I, um, if you only know the movie, uh, different things happen in the book, obviously, they often do. <laughs> and then this is a work of nonfiction. It's a kind of a compilation uh, of various interviews of modern Israelis um, from all walks of life, um, different religious backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, but the people that, the melting pot, basically, that make up Israel today. And so we were um, curious for the excerpts we're going to read, um, is there a particular interest in hearing uh, fiction first or non-fiction first? Non-fiction. Non-fiction, I have one vote. Gentlemen, agree? Who votes for non-fiction? Okay, that's the majority. All right, we will start with The Israelis, Ordinary People in an Extraordinary Land by Donna Rosenthal. So, and you're the primary on this one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to make, she hasn't made this disclaimer yet, so I'm going to make it. I just want to apologize if I mispronounce oh, yes. anything. Yes. We, we are not fluent in Yiddish or yeah. Hebrew, no. but we have both been to Israel several times um, uh, for the, what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. Are there any Yiddish or Hebrew speakers here? Okay, good. We might be safe, sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Gil Schwed's headquarters are in a skyscraper in Tel Aviv suburb. Oh, no. Yes, you have the color. I have it. Yes. Yes, the underlined things are what I'm reading. I know. I just wondered about the Ramat shading. Gone? You no, know, the shading. Okay. Okay. No, you're okay. Gil Schwed's headquarters are in, the are in a skyscraper in the Tel Aviv suburb of Ramat Gan on land where Barkat's grandfather, a bus driver, once grew tomatoes nicknamed Gil Bates. This Israeli Bill Gates has built Checkpoint into a company that reached $20 billion stock market value in 2001. In 2002, he was featured on a Forbes cover as one of the world's few self-made billionaires under 35. Though since then, Forbes estimates his net worth at only $375 million. His 24th floor office is decorated with abstract art, including a painting by a homeless San Francisco artist. A boyish-looking bachelor with cropped hair and John Lennon glasses, Gill explains his fondness for one blurry photo. From far away, it looks very unfocused, but up close, it looks like a tree or whatever you want to see. That's why I like it, because you can see what no one else can. That's what happened when people told him that his firewall idea wouldn't make money. We knew that businesses all over the world were going to need internet security. We saw things people didn't see. That's how it works in business. Maybe that's how it will work for peace. Answers will come from the unexpected. 
More than 100 million soft software customers, including many governments and nearly all Fortune 500 companies, use Checkpoint's firewalls to protect them from cyber snoops. The popularity of broadband and DSL phone hookups makes many millions of computers vulnerable to intruders. By 2008, the security software marketer exceeded $14 billion. Oracle's CEO, Larry Ellison, one of the world's finest men, met Gil in Israel in August 2007 and said Israelis are so, so innovative because they always question what they're told to do. Checkpoint is a global company with an Israeli character and Gil is determined to keep it that way. We love unorthodox experimentation and don't think, take things for granted. If someone says, do it this way, we double check to see if we can make it better. Doing things in un unusual ways is a way of life in Israel. We don't do things by the book and we're willing to challenge the rules and experiment, which can be an advantage. An American software CEO who has Israeli R&D offices made this observation. When I tell an Israeli the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, he'll find a shorter way. Gil concurs and describes his 10-minute commute from his Tel Aviv apartment. I always try a different route to get there faster. If I see a red light, I turn right. I'm very impatient. I can't stand waiting. Gil's impatience is not unusual in Israel. If the light turns green and you don't floor the gas pedal, Israeli drivers honk or yell out the window. They tailgate because they can't bear to have anyone cut ahead of them. They, those painted lines on the middle of the road, <laughs> they're merely a suggestion. When an Israeli cop stops a driver, he is prepared for an argument that the law is stupid and should be changed. When asked why Israelis are such terrible drivers, Jerusalem's late former mayor, Teddy Kolek, answered that when you have to fight a war every few years, safe driving becomes the farthest thing from your mind. It's much more dangerous to drive in Israel than to travel in space, said astronaut Ilan Ramon, assuring his family before leaving on his fateful mission. Israeli road warriors and high-tech entrepreneurs alike are known for taking risks and finding shortcuts. These behaviors create carnage on the roads, but they, but they helped put Israel on the fast lane of the information superhighway. Only the United States has a more high-tech startups. Gil thinks of Israel as a startup nation. We managed to create a country from zero, brought in immigrants, fed them, created a legal system, built cities, set up farms in the desert, invented techniques like drip irrigation. He adds that innovative researchers have developed disease-free potatoes, wilt-resistant tomato plants, and new ways to, to boost the nutritional value of wheat and have made many types of crops resistant to viruses and fungi. Israel's most famous startup Nick comes from a family of kibbutzniks. His mother, who grew up in a kibbutz, Ramat Raquel, near Jerusalem, lost her father during 1948 war. Gil's father's German family perished in the Holocaust. This offspring of socialist dreamers, a practical realist, yet tries to blend the old kibbutz group cooperative spirit he admires in his office culture. I want everyone to feel good together. Work is more than coming in the morning and leaving in the afternoon. I feel that finding creative ways to let people know how I value them. The trick is to be unconventional. He just flew 1,500 staff and their partners for a group vacation in, in Sun City, South Africa. Another year it was Cancun, Mexico. Even lunch is a cross between a, a, a commune and a yuppie experience. Gil, a food aficionado, 
had 20 different local restaurants email menus to the staff. In the dining room, the custom is to share a taste of Thai noodles, a bite of an enchilada. Near his office, there's a cappuccino machine and yoga and aerobic classes. He joins his staff twice a week for a spinning class on stationary bikes when he's stationary himself. He just returned from a trip around the world in eight days. Wherever he goes, black clothes are his trademark. Not to look cool, he explains. Black is very practical. Sweaters, socks, everything matches. Young Israelis, however, consider him cool, even in Lod, a downtrodden Jewish Muslim town next to Ben Huron International Airport, where Gil spent the morning meeting former dropouts who are mentored by volunteers from Checkpoint. With yawning gaps between the mega and many paychecks, Israel has one of the widest gaps between rich and poor in the Western world. Gil himself was an uninterested student. He credits his late mother, an elementary school teacher, for taking him on learning adventures. We went around the country. She'd see a dairy and stop and ask, can my kid watch how you milk cows? She'd knock on the door of Haaretz and say, can my kid see how you print newspapers? She had curiosity and chutzpah. The most memorable out outing was to his father's office in, at the Ministry of Finance back in 1972. He was only five. I saw a huge computer, like in the old movies. For a kid, it was very impressive. At nine, I signed myself up for an afternoon computer class at a religious community center. I was one of only, I was the one of the only non-Orthodox children. By the time he was 12, Gil had a summer job coding for language translation software company. By 14, the boy wondered and was writing, the boy wonder was writing software programs for a computer company. While in high school, Gil was allowed to take a computer science class at Hebrew University. He, he went to a few, didn't have time, he left. When the 17-year-old computer prodigy was drafted, he qualified for the Army's special training programs for gifted, children, for gifted students, but turned them down. I meant that I'd have to go to university for three years and the Army for six. I didn't want to commit myself for the next 10 years. They didn't know what to do with me. They even sent me to learn Arabic. Gil ended up in a secret electronic intelligent unit doing a job he is not permitted to discuss. It probably was stringing together military computer networks to allow some users access to qualified materials and denying it to others. The IDF was not intended to be a high-tech incubator. It was founded to defend the state. Nonetheless, it was impossible to imagine Israel's high-tech boom without the army. A huge percentage of Israel's high-tech leaders served in elite intelligence units working brutal hours in highly motivated teams designing the state-of-the-art technologies that give the IDF its tactical edge. When they get out, they, when they get out, they help power civilian high-tech. After his four-year army stint, Gil skipped college. He became a software consultant and shared his army idea with two friends. Shlomo Kramer, an alumnus of the same hush-hush intelligence unit, and Marius Nock of the Air Force. We started about 200 meters from here, he says, referring to an apartment that belonged to Nock's 90-year-old grandmother, where the trio spent six months working on borrowed computers. We worked until 1 a.m., then ate Japanese food or went for a drink on the beach. They unveiled their product at a computer show in Las Vegas in 1994. They didn't have any flashy promotional materials. Reporters wanted a press release. We were so naive, we didn't know what a press release was, but we wrote one anyway. 
Even though we didn't have any business training, we were good at guerrilla marketing. Judges gave their product the best software award. They called it Firewall. Today, it is a generic name throughout the computer world. One of the first persons they hired was Dorit Dorr, who also served in the classified military intelligence unit. Unlike Gil, she holds a diploma or three, including a doctorate in computer science from Tel Aviv University. Today, she's vice president in charge of product R&D. When told a current Israeli joke, why is it great to have a female boss? Because you know you're all, you'll always make more than she does. Gil says, it's not true here. And calls attention to the high number of women he has in senior management. And that more employees are out on maternity leave than muleum or reserve duty. In American computer, an American customer, I'm sorry, an American customer asked him why everyone is fighting and yelling. They're just talking. He explains, the lack of difference in status among bosses, managers, and underlings stun the non-Israelis. Instead, the hierarchical, instead of hierarchical leadership, many Israelis prefer leadership by, quote, natural authority. Dorit describes a typical meeting. Everyone speaks at the same time, interrupts mid-sentence. Silence means you're not interested. It's not only a checkpoint, it's the way Israelis can communicate. If they don't interrupt or ask questions, it means you're not capturing their interest. The more interruptions, the better the conversation. If three or four Israelis talk at once, that's a good sign. If they get excited and shout, they're probably quite interested. If someone starts pounding the table, you're making your point. Many Israelis are inept at small talk. It's one of the in inheritances of the founding generations whose, skill, whose social skills, or lack thereof, were formed by a powerfully egalitarian collectivism. Social graces were considered superficial, insincere, or artificially formal, and a waste of time. To this day, Israelis like talking dugri, an Arabic-Turkish word which means talking straight and honestly. When Israelis talk dugri, there's little posturing or gamemanship. Talking dugri is the opposite of subtle. It means speaking in a thorny, sabra style. Talking dugri means you know where you stand. Whereas some cultures tolerate or encourage uncertainty and ambiguity, most Israelis don't. A tactful expression such as, This proposal sounds interesting, confuses Israelis. Israeli style is blunt. This proposal won't work. Rarely do Israelis soften sentences with phrases like, oh, perhaps you might consider, or if you wouldn't mind. Instead, they just say, you're wrong. Hebrew itself is extremely concise. A four-word Hebrew proverb becomes 16 words when translated into English. Israelis often speak English like their, often speak English like their Hebrew, terse, economical, and explicit. Although many English speakers admired the eloquent speeches the late, the late Abba Eban made when he was when he was Israeli UN ambassador, many Israelis criticized his rhetorical flair and high-sounding language. He was, of course, educated at Cambridge rather than at the Technion. No, we have to skip chapters because there's a lot of good stuff in this book. So we're sort of highlighting some other 
aspects of Israeli culture. Do you want to read the name one now? Do you want me to read it? Yeah, oh, I'll read that. Okay. okay, okay. We like we like sharing. <clears throat> the story of Mizrahi, which means east in Hebrew, uh, Jews is a seldom told part of modern Jewish history. With the rise of Arab and Israeli, uh, sorry, Arab and Islamic nationalism in the 1940s, anti-Jewish violence swept through parts of the Middle East and North Africa, where Jews had lived for alternating periods of peace and persecution for more than 20 centuries. Synagogues, homes, shops, and schools were burned or looted, Jewish property confiscated. Thousands of Jews were arrested and killed. From 1948 through the 1960s, 87, sorry, 870,000 Mizrahi Jews fled, fled Yemen, Iraq, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Iran, and Afghanistan. More than 600,000 refugees came to Israel. Some left huts, others left villas. Silversmiths left shops in Casablanca, doctors left hospitals in Damascus, entrepreneurs closed movie theaters in Cairo. Writers, scholars, political and judicial leaders also gave up careers. But whatever their circumstances in the indigenous Jewish communities where they left behind, many which predate more than a thousand years the seventh century um, Arab Muslim conquest, most arrived in Israel destitute. Today, small Jewish communities remain in Yemen, Egypt, Egypt, Syria, Morocco, Tunisia, and Lebanon. There are four Jews left in Iraq. Iran, one of the largest surviving Mizrahi Jewish communities outside of Israel, has about 30,000 Jews. By 1951, refugees in transit camps were overwhelmingly from the Middle East and North Africa. Most were religious and rarely had known a secular Ashkenazim, especially the shameless women who had naked legs and wore sleeveless dresses, who worked alongside men and even bossed them. They had crazy socialist ideas and ate unappetizing foods like schnitzel and black Russian bread. They had no taste for couscous or kube. Their accents didn't even sound like real Hebrew and their prayers and melodies sounded harsh and foreign. They didn't eat corn or rice on Passover. Even worse, most of these Mizrahim did not observe the Sabbath. Similarly, few Ashkenazim had ever met a Mizrahi Jew. Suddenly, there were Jews that resembled Arabs and shared their tastes in food and music. How can they listen to an Egyptian singer and not Mozart? There were cross-culturally insensitive officials who thought to transform them into models of themselves, secular socialist Ashkenazi Israelis. Some adults were stripped of unpronounceable Arab and Persian names and given Hebrew names. To look more like secular Ashkenazim, some Yemenite children had their side locks cut off. Whether they spoke Kurdish or Farsi or Arabic, what many Mizrahi newcomers shared was being stereotyped and misunderstood. How could they be Jews if they didn't speak Yiddish, Golda Meir wondered in 1964. Like her, many veteran Israelis knew little about their newcomers' rich, varied cultures and religious traditions. According to the author Tom Segev, In the 50s, some Hebrew University professors were so worried about the ethnic problem, they argued that the only way to rescue these Arab Jews from backwardness was with strong infusion of European cultural values. It was degrading for my family, recalls Sammy Shmua, an urban, world-renowned socialist, I'm sorry, sociologist, at the University of Haifa, who spent his boyhood in a Jerusalem shantytown camp. We were told not to speak Arabic, but we didn't know Hebrew. Everything was strange. My father went from being a railroad official in Baghdad to an unskilled nobody. 
We suffered a terrible loss of identity. Looking back, I'd call it cultural repression. Behind their lofty ideals of, quote, one people, they were acting superior and patriarchic. The Smuha family was part of the oldest Jewish community in the world outside of Israel itself. Iraq, the Babylon of the Bible and the Talmud, was the Jews' first land of exile, when after the destruction of the first temple in 586 BC, many, as in many Islamic countries, Iraq Jews held key roles in public and cultural life. There was a Jewish finance minister and a Jewish deputy president of the Supreme Court until the pogrom of 1941 instigated by pro-Nazi Iraqis, in which 137 Jews were killed, hundreds injured, and thousands of homes and shops destroyed. But then, with the establishment of Israel, Zionism became a capital crime. In Baghdad, which was nearly a quarter Jewish, cheering crowds gathered to see Jews hanged in the central square. The Iraqi government nationalized Jewish property and jailed or killed hundreds of Jews. Nearly all of Iraq's 150,000 Jews had escaped to Israel by 1951. Unlike many other Mizrahi Jews, refugees from Iraq soon made their way out of the transit camps to Tel Aviv and other desirable towns in central Israel. The junior high history textbooks used between 1948 until 1967 describe Mizrahi as apathetic, primitive, and backward people who did not like to work. Continues Professor Smucha, who is an expert in Israeli, Israeli pluralism. The irony is that Mizrahi Jews were largely urban from cities like Baghdad, Damascus, Alexandria, Casablanca, and Beirut, more sophisticated than the, desert, the desolate Eastern European shetels, Yiddish for villages. So that's the Mizrahi, uh, and a little bit more about them. I think they're fine. Yossi was six when his family left a small Berber village in southern Morocco and emigrated to Israel in 1969. As a child, I dreamed of looking like a real Sabra with light skin. I was ashamed when people on the bus heard my parents talking Moroccan Arabic. Now I'm very ashamed of my shame. Sent to a vocational boarding school for mostly Mizrahi bad boys with low intellectual capabilities, he received bad marks in math and English and thought he was stupid. I didn't believe in myself, so I dropped out, he says. When I was drafted, someone mistakenly wrote that I passed the matriculation. The matriculation exam for English, so I was sent so I was sent to train as an intelligence office officer. That's when I changed my name from Ohana to Hetz to to block out my Mizrahi identity. After the army, when I saw this when I saw my soldiers Going to university to study subjects like economics and law, I realized what education means. At 24, I went back to high school. By age 30, Yossi had his BA and MA degrees in history and political science. My, my Mizrahi consciousness emerged slowly. About the time my fourth child was born, I changed my name back to Ohana. I did it even though giving my kids a Mizrahi name means they'll probably have a harder life, but I need to reclaim my Mizrahi identity. It's important that the kids I work with see that educated people also have Mizrahi names. Being Israeli does not mean being Ashkenazi. It took me a long time to learn that. The solution is to invest in education, show kids the job possibilities, Intel volunteers teach math, art, and technology to thousands of students, and run science summer camps. We donate hundreds of computers to the schools 
and give the Municipal Library a computerized system. That was Ahuva Marziano, a no-nonsense dynamo who runs Intel's Community Relations Program in Kiryat Gat, which is also trying to narrow the achievement gap. As a child, she immigrated to Israel from Iran with her parents. My father's a truck driver, and he pushed me to get an education. With the help of financial aid, Ahuva got an MBA from Ben-Gurion University. Our influence will be felt in, in another few years if people have the patience. The hermetically sealed clean room, larger than two football fields, is the heart of Intel Kiryat Gat. It's fanatically sanitized, thousands of times cleaner than a hospital's operating room, so no particle of dust can ruin the manufacture of the thin computer chips on top of silicon wafers, which are the brains of the world's computers. A group of wide-eyed local 16-year-olds and their teachers peer through a window, watching the clean room technicians who look like space aliens in airtight white bunny suits, blue booties and helmets, and monitor each wafer. These mostly Mizrahi children, many of whose parents are high school dropouts, are face-to-face -face with a different Israel. Wow, these technicians make American salaries? Ask a turned-on student who wears his baseball cap backwards, how did I get hired? We needed skilled workers. Their intel guide, the daughter of, a Yemen, of Yemenite immigrants, tells them, if you study science and math and learn computers, your job possibilities will be exciting. Yeah, but exciting can't pay the rent, sniffs a, a, a girl with a nose ring. After my mother was fired from Polgat, the clothing factory, she couldn't get a job here. Intel has two hiring conditions that disqualify most of their parents. Employees must have passed the high school matriculation exam and speak some English. We may not have a job for your mother, the guide says, but maybe we'll have one for you. Sederot is the closest Israeli town to the Gaza border, only half a mile away. Tzvadom, Tzvadom, the warning sirens cry. Code red alerts. Only 15 seconds to run to cover before the missile hits. And even though he's only nine, Gabi Boro knows what to do. Go, knows what to do. Sorry, it's children. I have a child, and so whenever children come. Look, if I have a house near me, even if it's a stranger, I run in without knocking. If there's no house, I run to a tree. And if there's no tree, I lie down on my stomach and cover my head. Six missiles have hit his elementary school, emitting explosives, bullets, nails, and shrapnel. In 2007, during the worst attack, the children luckily weren't there. Their parents kept them home, striking against the government for not reinforcing enough classrooms in their rocket-ridden western Negev town. On the second day of the 2007-8 school year, a barrage of nine rockets hit, one damaging a daycare filled with babies. The nine codes, three, rocket, three rockets, were a present from the start of a new school year. Islamic Jihad announced on its website, frantic parents already furious over the government's failure to protect them and their children from the near-daily rocket fire pulled their children out of schools. Twenty parents and children have been killed in this drop, including immigrants from Ethiopia and Uzbekistan. Children are sleepless. They can't concentrate. Over 33% have post-traumatic stress syndrome, says psychologist Roni Berger. Rockets often hit when children are going to school, as a high school science history, high school art history teacher. A rocket hit her classroom recently. The kids' lives are ruined. I'm afraid, I'm not afraid, and I'm not angry. I'd like to be able to talk to the Palestinians in Gaza. We used to have regular contact with them, but no more. Our children know nothing about them, and they're afraid and angry. In Sidorot City Hall, 
and there's a room filled with hundreds of twisted metal parts of missiles launched by Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Fatah's Al-Qaeda Martyrs Brigades, with the dates that they hit painted on them. Palestinians have launched over 5,000 missiles from Gaza into Israel since 2001. Many have crashed into schools, apartments, synagogues. Algerian-born grandfather is, walk is walking to his car. I heard the whistle of a Qasim overhead. It landed two meters from me, but didn't explode. My five-year-old granddaughter, Adar, asked me to play with her in, a sa in the safe room in my house. She refuses to sit in the living room. The uncertainty is killing us. I'm sure on the other hand, I'm sure on the other side of the border, a Palestinian grandfather is saying the same things I am. He's fed up also, but can't convince the Hamas people to stop the rockets. Trying to lead a normal life, Sidrot's teens turned a bomb shelter into a music room. They call it Sidrak, in order, in honor of Sidrak's Sidrot's rock stars. Kobe Oz, the leader of the famous T-Bax band, grew up in Sidrot. Israelis vote, voted overwhelmingly for the TPACs to represent Israel in the 2007 Eurovision Song Contest. In front of some one billion television viewers, the TPACs created a tempest with their politically charged entry, Push the Button. In hip Mizrahi rap song about nuclear annihilation, Kobe warns, The world is full of terror. If someone makes an error, he's gonna blow us up. So kingdom come, he's gonna push the button, push the button, push the button. I don't wanna die, I wanna see the flowers bloom, don't wanna go kaput kaboom. His lyrics reflected Israelis' anxieties about Iranian President Ahmad, the Iranian president, uh, who <laughs> wants Israel wiped off the map. Life doesn't look promising, so for Zidrot. It's bloody June 2007 coup against Fatah, Hamas took an enormous armed stockpile, significantly increasing its rocket capabilities. It is also smuggling in sophisticated Russian-made long-range missiles with a greater payload of explosives capable of hitting Ashkelon, which is 10 miles north of Sidrut. Ashkelon, a city of 200,000, is Israel's second biggest port and its power station supplies a quarter of Israel's electricity. Hamas also has Russian-made anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, thousands of M16 and Kalashnikov assault rifles. Islamic Jihad has one of the Al-Quds 4 rockets, which is a reported range of 22 kilometers. Today, among the 24,000 mostly Mizrahi residents are newcomers from Ethiopia in the former Soviet Union. Sidrot, which means fields, was founded in the 1950s for destitute Jews from Morocco, Algeria, and other Muslim countries. People pleaded futilely with the Moroccan-born resident defense minister, Amir Peretz, to stop the rockets. Peretz, the first Mizrahi to head the Labor Party, did little before he was ousted in June 2007. It took an Israeli-Russian billionaire to give nervous Sidrot residents some respite. Arkady Gaidamak sent thousands of Sidrot residents on an all-expense-paid vacation to Eliot. The government doesn't do anything. We should build a statue to Gaidamak, said a bankrupt store owner. He has an open heart. And an open checkbook. When the Hezbollah rockets hit northern Israel, the controversial tycoon set up a beach tent village to house thousands of fleeing, fleeing from the shelling. Gaidamak bought Bayatar Jerusalem, a socket team with a fervent Mizrahi support. In 2007, Gaidamak launched the Social Justice Political Party. His most avid supporters, Mizrahim, 
and Russians. Nothing like a few billion to build a political movement. <clears throat> we probably better switch to Tunisia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is <clears throat> appropriate, actually, because this is now, we're switching to the uh, fiction uh, sequel to Fiddler <coughs> on the Roof. Um, and this is, um, just to kind of catch you up a little bit, after, if you remember the movie, Tuvia was, um, they, they, at the end of the movie, they were leaving Anatevka, where they lived, and um, were going somewhere, didn't know where. This book picks up with him getting to a crossroads to decide to go to America to see one of his daughters, or to go to Israel. So he decides to go to Israel, lots of trials, tribulations, etc., along the way. But um, they're trying to get, he's, he keep, he's trying to get involved with some kibbutzes that uh, Baron Rothschild, um, if you know the name, um, was setting up a lot of kibbutz um, areas in uh, Israel. And so this is when, I think this is the second one he's at, and uh, he meets his first uh, Mizrahi Jew, um, a Jew from Yemen. <coughs> Two, oh, well, let, we'll skip that part. Let's, let's get right to, right to two. There we go. <clears throat> Where? Uh, page 245. 245? Yeah. I love that. I know. When the long-gowned, long-side-locked, prayer shawl and swathed Yemenite first arrived in Sikran Yaqaf, the Russian Jews found it difficult to believe that this golden-skinned apparition could be a Jew. The first time Tuvia saw him, he mistook him for an Arab. But an Arab with tzitzit and peyot? The sight was a puzzle. When Elisha joined them in prayer, it seemed even more absurd. Everyone knew that only a Jew could be included in the minion. Still more bewildering, the Yemenite spoke Hebrew more fluently than all of them. True, the melodious wailing which ushered from his lips was a Hebrew that Tuvia had never heard, but it was the language of his forefathers, nonetheless. Are you really a Jew? Tuvia asked in surprise. The man nodded. Yes. He looked at Tuvia from head to foot. Are you? Am I a Jew? You don't look like a Jew, the Yemenite said. Tuvia's back stiffened. My mother and father were Jews, their mother and father were Jews, their mother and father before them, all the way back to Abraham, he declared. So were mine, the man answered, standing in a pose of defiance, but smiling at Tuvia with his eyes. All the way back to Abraham. We must be related. Nonsense. Your skin is brown as clay. Did you think that Abraham was Yiddish? Spoke Yiddish? Of course not, but he certainly wasn't black. There is a tradition which teaches that when God gave the Torah on Sinai amidst thunder and fire, the people who loved God the most ran forward to get as close as they could, and their skin was burned by the flames. They were the Yemenite Jews. Others, frightened by the fire and thunder, ran away to the edge of the camp. These became Ashkenazim. In punishment, when the exile came, God's, God sent these Jews far away from his land to the cold northern countries of Russia and Europe. The Jews whose skin was darkened because they rushed to be close to the mountain, God kept them near him, even in the, even in the exile from Israel in neighboring lands, like my people, the Yemenite Jews. A boom is a story if I ever heard one, Tuvia declared. The exotic-looking Jew smiled a warm, happy smile. His eyes, black as coal, seemed to glow. Graciously, he invited Tuvia to join him in his quarters for a drink, and that's how their friendship began. Surprisingly, he, read, he led Tuvia to one of the settlement's chicken, chicken coops. 
Upon their arrival in Sikron Yaakov, the Yemenite family had been assigned to live with the chickens. With a wife and 11 children, the arrangement made for cramped living, but the happy-eyed Jew hadn't complained. The coop had a roof, and the family wasn't bothered at all by the smell of the fowls. During the day, the chickens didn't stop squawking, but having been blessed with their own brood of children, Elisha and his wife were no strangers to noise. During the night, in harmony with the Almighty's plan for creation, the chickens slept peacefully until the first signs of morning, when it was time to get up and work in the fields. Though Elisha was the same age as Tuvia, he looked 20 years younger. So did his wife. If it had not been for the white kerchief she wore swirled on her head, Tuvia would have mistaken her for one of his own daughters. Her color was more golden red than her husband's, and she had the same dark, glowing eyes. As if times had never changed, she wore the tribal robe that Yemenite women had been wearing for ages. For the length of Tuvia's visit, she never uttered a word. Most of the time, she stayed out of view behind the curtains that they used as a room divider at the far end of the coop. Occasionally, she would appear to see if their plate of grapes needed refilling, or she would send one of her strikingly beautiful daughters to do it. Like Tuvia's wife, Golda, she had served generous portions, but whereas Golda was quick to add her opinion to every discussion, Elisha's wife let her husband do all the talking. Their eldest children were a little older than Tuvia's, while their youngest was still crawling on the floor. All had the same gem-like Yemenite eyes. The hue of their skin was the color of rich golden earth. The boys had side locks down to their shoulders, and the long black hair of the girls hung down their backs like the manes of Arabian horses. Over a glass of a rock, the happy, thankful smile never left his face, and Elisha told Tuvia his life story. Like, other, like every other place on the globe where the wandering Jews had settled, there had been good times and there had been bad times in Yemen. For several generations, Jews had been left to live in peace, but like in Russia, things eventually had taken a turn for the worse. The Yemenite Jews were third-class citizens, hounded by Muslim terror, victims of beatings and theft. Their complaints to the ruling Turks fell on deaf ears. The only work they could find was invariably outside the city, and highwaymen made ro roadways apparel. For years, Elisha had heard stories about Eretz Yisrael, and the gigantic oranges and figs which a man could barely lift with two hands, and about the Yemenites who had become wealthy businessmen there. When the Muslims began killing Jews, instead of merely praying in the direction of Zion three times a day, Elisha decided to embark on the long and dangerous journey. Now, skipping ahead a little bit, um, as in a lot of um, early settlements in Israel, there were a lot of swamps um, and disease um, happened a lot, and cholera um, uh, was very bad, and one of Tuvia's grandchildren um, got sick, and they're taking him to a doctor in a neighboring settlement. I'm afraid the boy has cholera, too. We will, take, we, will, we will try to bleed him, but it hasn't helped the others. I'll ask Dr. Schwartz to look at him, just to be sure. Bleed him, Tuvia asked. The idea sounded awful. Didn't the Torah teach that a person's life force was contained in his blood? That's the standard procedure, the doctor said. Won't that just weaken him? The young doctor shrugged. I won't allow it, Tuvia emphatically shouted. I won't allow it, do you hear? Very well, the doctor said. We really only do it when we don't know what other action to take. A great weariness overtook Tuvia. Tuvia and his daughter Batsheva were riding back to the center of the Mushab when a bearded Jew ran up to the wagon. Are you Tuvia, he called. That's right. And who are you? Just a Jew, the man said. 
How do you know my name? Well, I had a dream last night that someone named Tuvia would be coming, and so far you're the only stranger I've seen. May your dream be a good one. I have a message for you. My ears are ringing. You are to immerse the sick boy in the holy mikvah in Safad. There God will answer your prayers. Zafed was the name of the renowned holy city where the great Jewish mystics had lived. The Ari, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, was the most famous of all. Much of the Kabbalah had been based on his teachings. There was a legend that anyone who immersed himself in the Ari Mikvah would be miraculously blessed. Its waters supposedly flowed from the Garden of Eden. Oh, Father, you don't really believe in such nonsense, Bashevi tried it. Quiet! He turned, go ahead. I'm sorry, he turned back to the man in the road. What else did you see in your dream? Not a thing, the Jew confessed. The young fellow who told me, to t told me took off in a hurry. What was his name? That's right, said the stranger. He told me to tell you his name. He paused theatrically, as if to heighten Tuvia's suspense. Who? He called him himself Shmelech. Tuvia felt chills run up and down his body. The man waved a hand and continued on his way, wishing the boy a complete recovery. Tuvia watched him disappear behind one of the neighboring houses. It's nothing but superstition, Betsheba said. Shmelech is dead. The righteous don't die. Their souls go on living. With an urgent command to the horse, Tuvia turned the wagon around in the road. Within minutes, they were back in the infirmary. You're not really thinking of taking Moshe to Shafed. I certainly am. He doesn't have the strength for the journey. You heard the doctor. There is nothing they can do for him here. Nothing that Batsheva could say would dissuade him. She knew that arguing with her father was useless. Tuvia was convinced that the dream had been a message from heaven and that the mysterious Jew was none other than the famed prophet Elijah who traveled from city to city helping Jews the world over. It seemed like craziness to Batsheva, but she couldn't let her father travel alone with no one to look after the boy. So she decided to go along the journey to Zafed. She supplied them with enough water, cheeses, black bread, and fruit to last for a week. She even packed along a bottle of vodka, which she found in one of the infirmary's cabinets. Now there's a good doctor, Tuvia said. To reach Zafed, they first had to travel north to Haifa, and then along the long winding road high up into the Galilee mountains. The journey took them four days. Moshe slept most of the way. Occasionally he opened his eyes, but he had nothing to say. He, lifted, he lived on sips of water and tiny nipples of cheese. But Sheva sang to him and told him stories, but much of the time she wasn't sure that he heard. While Tuvia had never studied Kabbalah, he had learned a few things here and there about the secrets of the Torah. The influence of the Hasidic movement had been spread throughout Russia, and the mystics passing through Anatevka had often dined at his house, sharing with Tuvia the mysteries revealed in the Tanya and the Zohar. Like, uh, for a simple Jew like Tuvia, the concepts made his head spin. What good did it do knowing the secrets of creation when you had to go back to milking your cows? The Kabbalists descri described the immersion in a mikvah as a mystical return to the womb. The person emerging from the ritual pool was like someone reborn. If he had sinned and repented, now he would be forgiven because he was like a new being. Though Tuvia decided that the esoteric teachings weren't for him, he had a steadfast belief in everything the sages had written. And among the great Kabbalists, the Ari, may his memory be a blessing, was at the top of the line. 
If he had left a special healing blessing in his mikvah, then Tuvia was convinced the boy would be healed. The city of Zaphed was literally up in the clouds. As they ascended the mountain, gusts of wind whirled around them, blowing flakes of snow in their faces. The entrance to the city was guarded by a wall of fog and mist, as if only the privileged could enter. For several long moments, their horse disappeared in the vapor in front of them. Then the curtain of fog seemed to part, revealing a mystical enclave which seemed to hover in the sky on the platform of the clouds. Reaching the city was like entering another world. For one thing, Tuvia did not see any Arabs or Turks. Ever since the time of the Second Temple, for nearly 2,000 years, Jews had lived in this ancient mountain enclave. There, the Jews found refuge from invading armies, building a spiritual fortress with fortress which no foe could threaten. The roadway had never been smoothed, as if no one bothered about the physical comfort. Buildings were crumbling ruins. A series of devastating earthquakes had left rubble everywhere. A legend claimed that the disasters had happened because of the awesome power of the Kabbalists' prayers. The houses still standing were built out of large blocks of stone. All of the Jews who passed by on the roadside had long, untrimmed beards and burning, mystical eyes. They darted swiftly down narrow alleyways, their eyes on the ground, their thoughts up in heaven. Most of them lived on charity sent by Jews from overseas. They lived, they spent their days fasting, engrossed in study, in fervent prayer. When Tuvia asked the way to the famous mikvah, they all pointed in a direction away from the town, down a sloping hillside. The steepness of the descent was frightening. Tuvia's horse balked. At the outskirts of the old picturesque village, the road ended and the wagon came to a halt. Tuvia took the towels that Batsheva had packed with the food and an extra blanket to make sure that Moshe didn't catch cold. A narrow dirt path led to the ancient mountainside cemetery of Zafed. Many of the tombstones were cracked. Though the earthquakes had made ruins of the city, the greater part of the cemetery had been spared. A group of Hasidim stood reading psalms at the gravesite where the Ari was buried. Day and night, supplicants prayed at his tomb. Candles burned at the monument. A short distance away was the grave of Rabbi Yosef Karo, author of the great <coughs> Shulchan Aruch. Further down the hill was the tomb of the prophet Hosea and the cave where the martyred Hannah was buried with her seven slaughtered sons. A serene, holy stillness hung over the mountainside. Even Batsheva, who was normally skeptical, could sense the mystical pull of the sight. She walked beside her father, not saying a word. Moshe opened his eyes and stared at the cemetery. Only God knew what the small boy was thinking. That must be the mikvah, Tuvia said, pointing at the mouth of a cave where a Hasid was standing. I'll wait for you here, Batsheva said. There is a woman in the cemetery. Go and pray by her side. Embarrassed, Batsheva hesitated. She stood awed, feeling that feeling that all of the holy rabbis were gazing at her from their graves. She felt shame as if her lapse in faith made her unworthy to pray in so sacred of a place. Carrying the boy in his arms, Tuvia descended toward the mountainside cave. Its entrance was a narrow archway in the rock. Inside, candles burning on a ledge lit the darkness. The walls were all solid stone, as if the cave had been carved out of a gigantic boulder. Deeper into the cave, an underground stream flowed into the natural pool of the mikvah. The shadowy figure of the Hasid appeared behind them. Without questioning Tuvia, he wished the boy a speedy recovery and asked if he could help. Tuvia let him hold Moshe as he quickly undressed. The cold, rocky floor sent chills through his body. In the flicker of the candlelight, 
He saw the boy's big eyes stare questioningly at his grandfather. Don't worry, my little one. You're going to get better, I promise. He stripped the boy bare and scooped him up in his arms. Careful not to slip on the wet rocky slate, Tuvia inched toward the mikvah. He knew the mountain water was bound to be cold, but when his foot descended in the first stone step into the pool, he felt as if he had put his toes into a bucket of ice. His body trembled. Why prolong the agony, he thought. With a gasp, he rushed forward and leaped into the freezing mikvah. He carried Moshe down with him under the water, then let him go for the briefest of moments so the boy would be completely submerged in the pool. Then, with a shivering roar, he burst out of the water and lunged for the steps. The Hasid reached down and swept the boy into a towel. Tuvia's teeth chattered as he hoisted himself back up onto the floor of the cave. They dried and dressed the boy quickly, then bundled him up in the blanket that his grandfather had brought. When Tuvia finished dressing, he carried his grandson back out of the cave. The Hasid said that Tuvia could bring Moshe to the yeshiva up the hill to warm him by the stove. Tuvia readily accepted the offer. Quickly, so the boy wouldn't catch a cold, he followed the black-garbed Jew up the steep path. Outside the yeshiva, the Hasid stopped in a narrow alley and knocked on a door. An old kerchief woman appeared, and a after a moment's explanation, Batsheva was invited inside for while her father took Moshe to the yeshiva. The study hall was filled with Hasidim dressed in long black frocks and fur coats. Many of them wore prayer shawls and tefillin. Tuvia felt like he had stepped into a yeshiva in Russia. Talmudic volumes, their covers torn from use, filled the shelves along the walls. An elaborately carved <coughs> hakodesh holding the Torah stood in the south of the study hall so that the prayers could be directed toward Jerusalem. The Hasid sat Tuvia and Moshe in chairs by a large metal stove. The heat in its fire rose around them, removing the chill from their bones. Within a, within a minute, cups of hot tea were brought. Tuvia watched in wonder as Moshe filled, took the cup in his hands. He sipped the warm, fragrant brew and smiled. Drink, my child, Tuvia told him, amazed at the improvement that he saw. Every second, the boy seemed to look stronger. For the first time in days, color returned to his face. A plate of biscuits and small pastries was, eat, was set before them. Es, eat, Tuvia said, handing the boy a sweet-smelling cake. Moishe ate the tasty morsel with relish. Happily, his grandfather held out another. I want to go pray, Moishe said. They were the first words the child had spoken in days. Eat another piece of cake. Later, Moishe said, standing up. Are you sure you have the strength? Hashim will give me the strength, the boy said. To Tuvia's surprise, the boy didn't stand up to pray in the yeshiva. He walked to the door and hurried outside. Like a deer, he ran down the hillside path which led to the cemetery. Tuvia watched in amazement. Chills shook his body, but not from the cold, but from the miracle he was witnessing. As if the boy had lived in the city of Zafed for a lifetime, he ran straight to the grave of the Ari, praying, his little body swaying back and forth like the Hasidim who were praying beside him. Tuvia looked up at the sky and said, thank you. With joy in his heart, he walked down the dirt path to join his grandson in prayer at the grave of the holy Sadiq. Let's see, do we want something happy or sad? Happy. Ha happy. All right. It's cold. It's cold outside. Yeah, Simcha. That's right. Uh, let's see. So not when Batsheva dies. Because uh, <laughs> I will cry then too. Okay, here we go. 
All right, do you remember, you remember from the, the movie that Huddle um, married, I mean not Huddle, uh, yes, Huddle had married Perchik. Um, if you've seen the movie, he would, Huddle was from a religious family, Perchik was not religious at all. Um, and they end up in Israel, actually, before um, Tuvia. And uh, then they, they have a child, and Huddle decides that she wants to raise the child um, religiously, and Perchik does not. And so um, she leaves him, feels bad, goes back. Um, it's, ba it's very bad, so she leaves again, and they get divorced. So now she's living in the same settle settlement as, as her father. Uh, 4.13. Ever since her divorce from Perchik, his poor daughter, daughter Huddle had become the opposite of her usual happy, spontaneous self. Why the sad face all the time, Tuvia asked her. You should be happy. Thank God you're finished with that scoundrel. But Huddle was not consoled. After all, Perchik had been her whole life. As an impetuous teenager, she had run away from home to marry the man of her dreams. Because of her love for him, she had torn herself from her family in all of their ways. She had followed after him to Siberia, and then when he had become disappointed and bitter with the revolutionary cause, she had followed dutifully after him to Palestine. Now she trusted in him and had shared all of his dreams. And then their great balloon ride crashed. He introduced her to Tolstoy, to Shakespeare, to Voltaire, and Abraham Lincoln. But what good did it do her now? She was alone. She was abandoned. She was betrayed. The rib she had shared with her husband had a part of her was missing. Bringing up their child kept her busy, but a child wasn't a husband. A child wasn't a man. Tuvia found it difficult to talk to his daughter. He didn't understand her deeper emotions. To his way of thinking, she was depressed because of the shame. After all, in the old country, divorce was unheard of. If a man and woman didn't get along, they learned to live with each other for the sake of their children. The stigma was so great that a matchmaker wouldn't even consider arranging a match for a person whose parents had separated. Nonetheless, Tuvia told his daughter, if a divorce meant getting rid of an unbeliever like Perchik, it wasn't such a terrible thing. In fact, it was a great mitzvah. You don't understand me at all, she told him sadly. Unfortunately, you never have. That ended their conversation. Perhaps it was true, Tuvia thought. After all, Huddle belonged to a generation that was far different from his. Their minds were full of questions. Simple answers weren't enough. Tuvia's simple faith was scoffed at. The wisdom of the sages, all of their insights, all of their pearls were looked on as primitive prattle. For the young generation, the existence of God had to be proved. In short, sons and daughters grew up with minds of their own and parents no longer knew how to answer their bewildering questions. Strangely, Tuvia didn't have the same problem at all with his wife. Oh yes, Golda died before they got to the Holy Land which is very sad, but after a long, 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 long time, he actually married one of the Yemenites' uh, daughters, Carmel. He's very nice. <clears throat> so, uh, let's see. So Tuvia didn't have the same problem with his wife. Although she was almost the same age as Huddle, she understood Tuvia completely. Sometimes Tuvia felt that Carmel had slipped into his beloved Golda's soul. May her memory be a blessing. True, his young wife was from Yemen, and the Jews had lived there for centuries untouched by modern times. The thought of disagreeing with her husband had never entered her mind. Peace was achieved by giving in to the man of the house. And besides, she truly respected her husband's life experience and wisdom. But in Anatevka, living side by side with the Gentiles, 
How could a father protect his children from the modern world and the heretical culture it bred? It was no wonder that one generation didn't get along with the next. Outside of the ghetto, the world changed every day. Now there were automobiles, airplanes, telephones. The eternal truth stayed the same, but in the age of cameras and motion pictures, who was interested in dusty, worn volumes of the Talmud? So instead of getting into a quarrel with his daughter, Tuvia sent his wife to find out what was the matter. She needs a new husband, Carmel said, after spending a long evening with Harold. Tuvia's wife didn't know Spinoza, Mendelssohn, or Karl Marx, but she knew that Huddle needed a man. Did she mention anyone in particular? Tuvia asked. No, she still too hurt about her check to be thinking about getting married again. Do you have any suggestions? You know her better than I do, Tuvia's wife answered. She's fiery and stubborn and filled with all kinds of highfalutin ideas. I remember she always liked music. That is, before she learned to read. Carmel was silent. Tuvia loved her for that. She knew when to speak up and when to leave matters to him. You know, that isn't a bad idea. Who? Carmel asked. Hillel! Tuvia's wife thought and nodded her head. Unless you think he's too old for her, Tuvia added with a grin. His wife smiled back. The great difference in their ages was a joyful joke between them. Do you want me to suggest it to her? No, 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 no. That would end it before it began. If she thinks it's something I've planned, she'll say no, just for spite. She may have learned a big lesson about husbands, but I know my daughter. She's still stubborn and willful. We have to proceed with caution. Tuvia grabbed a bottle of wine, and without out waiting another minute, he set off to the barracks where the bachelors all slept. The musician was leading a symphony for snoring. Tuvia sat on his bed and poked his friend until he woke up with a startled expression. What's the matter, he asked. It isn't good for a man to be alone. You've woken me in the middle of the night to tell me it, Hillel asked. It's time you got married. Hillel wiped the sleep from his eyes. With whom? Whispering, Tuvia related his plan. The lovelorn musician agreed with a big grin at once. As if concluding the transaction, the father of the bride handled the bottle of wine to the, to the groom. L'chaim! L'chaim, Hillel answered. Singing the blessing over the wine in the, tra- in the traditional wedding tune, he raised the bottle to his mouth and drank. Then he handled the bottle to t- handed the bottle to Tuvia. I can't. When I was sinking in the swamp, I made a vow to give up drinking. This isn't drinking, it's a toast. A vow is a vow. But if my daughter agrees to marry you, I will speak to the rabbi before the wedding to see if I can have a sip or two to celebrate such a joyful simcha. The very next day, outside the packing house of the colony, where Huddle worked packaging vegetables into crates before they were sent to market, a man started singing a love song behind her. It was Hillel. He had been transferred from the fields to the packing house to help speed the work. Though the other unmarried women looked, worked along beside her, with the women's intuition, Huddle felt that Hillel's ballads were being aimed in her directions. By their smiles, the other women seemed to sense it too. As his love songs continued, Huddle felt herself blushing. Without looking at Hillel, she fastened the lid on a crate of tomatoes and carried it toward one of the wagons. Yentl, the wife of the butcher, walked beside her. Running away from a love song, she asked. Nonsense! He certainly isn't singing to me. I'm married, and so are Minnie and Ruth. So? And the other girls are too young to get married. A minstrel doesn't need a reason to sing. Perhaps not, 
But hello has been long-faced for months. All of a sudden, you show up for a visit, and he turns into a nightingale. Again, Huddle blushed. Walking back to her, he her heap of vegetables, she caught Hillel's eye. He stared at her with an un unabashedly friendly smile, the kind of smile a, re a religious man isn't supposed to extend to a woman unless he has serious intentions. With a polite, if frigid, reaction, Huddle settled back to her work. Can I marry Hillel the minstrel, she thought? He was the age of her father and lame. Not that lameness was a sin, but it certainly wasn't an attractive quality in a man. Why does a man have to be attractive, a voice inside her asked. Her husband, Perchik, had been attractive, and what had it gotten her? What good did, did looks matter if a man was an egotistical rogue inside? And in this world, in one way or another, wasn't everyone lame? No one was perfect except the creator. So if she was to look upon the shortcomings of Hillel, or anyone else. Now he was whistling. The sweet Sabbath song filled her ears. Though the lyrics spoke of a love between a man and a woman, she knew it was a song about a Jew's love for God. Love schmoop, she heard her mother's voice say. What does love have to do with marriage? A man and a woman are brought together to bring children into the world. They live in the same house to raise up a family. What does love have to do with anything? Cooking and cleaning, scrubbing, folding, Putting up with a man's groanings and tantrums, that's love. You're not a spring chicken anymore. Immersed in her thoughts, Huddle began putting the tomatoes into a potato sack. Yentl smiled at her kindly and pushed over an empty crate with her foot. She gave Huddle a wink as Hillel limped by, lugging a load of tomatoes over to the wagon. <clears throat> oh, stop it, Huddle said. It was ridiculous. How could she marry a man that was her father's age? Just as her mind asked the question, a wagon rode over and stopped a short distance away from the packing house. A mountain of tomatoes had arrived, waiting to be crated and shipped. Tuvia was driving. Carmel sat beside him, holding their baby. The boy was big enough now to take along into the fields. While his mother packed the tomatoes, little Tzvi rested near, nearby in the shade of an impro improvised lean-to. With a big, happy grin, Tuvia got down from the wagon. He held out his hand and helped Carmel climb down with the child. How happy they seemed, Huddle thought. Though her father was much older than Carmel, they looked like a match made in heaven. That's as far as we planned, but they do get married, and they're very happy. So.